You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Dellen Millard grew up the heir to an airline company and had the means to get anything he wanted. It turns out that what he really wanted was to be a criminal. This is Monsters. Dellen Millard is the subject of quite a twisted tale. His crimes and his trials don't happen in order, so I'm going to try to keep the story in chronological order to help it make sense. Dellen was born on August 30, 1985, in Toronto, Ontario, to Wayne Millard and Madeline Burns. Wayne owned and operated Millard Air, which was an aviation company founded by Dellen's grandfather, Carl Millard, in 1954. With a small fleet of airplanes, Carl operated his business out of Pearson International Airport in Toronto. Carl became known for developing a way to get nervous horses onto airplanes. Horses don't like to get onto airplanes, so Carl built a series of enclosed ramps that would gradually direct the horse right onto the plane. As the planes aged, the family didn't want to invest in a whole new fleet of aircraft and shifted to just selling planes and parts. Dellen became famous in 1999 when, at just 14 years old, he became the youngest person to have a solo flight in both an airplane and a helicopter on the same day. It was this news that finally gained him some respect at school. Dellen attended a private school where he was surrounded by other kids from wealthy families. Unlike the other kids who always wore the latest fashions, Dellen wore jeans and plaid shirts to school and his father dropped him off in an old pickup truck. The most notable thing that people remembered about Dellen was that he would carry around a box of dog biscuits and snack on them throughout the day. When Carl died in 2006, Wayne took over the business, and even though Dellen had previously gone to school to become a chef, he began running the business with his father. Dellen met a woman named Laura Babcock around 2009 at Brunswick House, a pub in Toronto. They began dating for a short time before becoming friends who would still engage in sex from time to time. Laura then dated a man named Sean Lerner for about 18 months in 2010 and 2011. A few months before they broke up, Laura told a healthcare worker that she had been suffering from depression and anxiety. She admitted to engaging in self-harm. 
This was followed by a downward spiral of Laura using drugs, becoming homeless, and working for an escort business. During this time, Dellen had started dating a woman named Christina Nudga, and she had become jealous of Dellen's relationship with Laura. The women began texting taunts back and forth to each other. On April 17, 2012, Dellen sent a text to Christina that he was going to take care of Laura. It said, quote, First I'm going to hurt her, then I'll make her leave. I'll remove her from our lives, end quote. When Sean learned that Laura was having a difficult time, he paid for a motel room for her to stay in and gave her an iPad so she could look for apartments. On July 3, 2012, Laura stopped at her parents' house and dropped off a suitcase full of clothes, her Maltese dog, Lacey, and a shoebox with about $1,000 in cash in it. She then went to a subway station where Dellen picked her up and took her to his house. Well, it was his father's house, but he told authorities that he was renovating the apartment he owned, so he was living at his father's house. At 7.03 p.m., Laura made an outgoing call on her phone to check her voicemail, which connected to a cell tower near Dellen's house. That was the last activity that ever happened on her phone. At about 7.30 p.m., Dellen texted a longtime friend, Mark Smitch, that read, quote, I'm on a mission, back in one hour, end quote. The following day, the iPad that Sean had given to Laura was connected to Dellen's computer and the name was changed to Mark's iPad. Then, Dellen took a picture of a rolled-up blue tarp on a farm he owned in Waterloo. Here's the next entry in my long-running series of tips for criminals. First, if you're going to kill someone, don't make your house the last place that their cell phone pings. Then, don't take an electronic device from them and plug it into your computer. Computers have log files that most people don't know about, but that's because most people don't need to know about them. But in that log file, your computer records everything that happens to it, including when a USB device is plugged into the computer and when it's unplugged from the computer. On top of that, don't change the stolen electronic device to have your name on it. Then, don't take photographic evidence of your crime. You might as well just wear a sign that says, I did it. Dellen had also ordered a commercial incinerator meant for farms to dispose of dead animals. It was aptly named the Eliminator. He had a mechanic for his family's company, Shane Schlattman, build a trailer for it so he could transport it out to his farmland in Waterloo. On July 23rd, Dellen sent a text message to Mark that read, quote, Barbecue has run its warm-up. It's ready for meat, end quote. Then he did a search on his phone for temperatures for cremation. He took more pictures, this time of Mark with the incinerator. Laura was reported missing on July 14th by both her family and Sean Lerner, but when the police discovered her history of mental illness and that she had worked as an escort, they didn't take the report seriously. Because, you know, someone who suffers from mental illness and or who works for an escort couldn't possibly be in danger, clearly. When Laura's cell phone bill arrived at her parents' house, they noticed that the last contact was with Dellen. Sean sent Dellen a text that read, quote, I'm not looking to point a finger at anyone, but we're concerned about Laura, and it looks like you were the last person to correspond with her, end quote. Dellen tried to ignore the texts, but Sean persisted and he finally responded, agreeing to meet Sean at a local Starbucks to discuss the situation. At the meeting, Dellen claimed that Laura was hounding him to get her drugs and that he had denied her request. 
Then he told Sean that he should, quote, have no reasonable expectation of finding her, end quote. Sean gave the phone records to police, but they never followed up on the information. With the police not taking Laura's disappearance seriously and no evidence that proved Dellen had killed her, there wasn't much the family could do. On November 29, 2012, Dellen's father, Wayne, was found dead inside his home. He had been shot through the left eye. After the police were called, they brought Dellen in for questioning. It was Thursday, uh, sometime between 6 and 6.30, I got back to the house. I had been uh, working at our family business in Waterloo. Um, I came in through the side door. That's the door most everybody uses in the house. And um, I opened up the next door, which leads to the cat area of the house. It's the door from the kitchen to the hallway. And then my dog, Petal, was waiting for me there. Um, and I walked down the hallway, and I walked to my room, and um, I picked a sweater out of the closet. It had been a cold day. And then I was on my way back to the kitchen to make a snack, and I noticed that my father seemed to still be asleep in bed, which was odd because it was um, late in the afternoon. And so I poked my head in, and something didn't really seem right um, about the way he was laying. He was laying very stilly. And then I walked into the room, saw the blood on the pillow and uh, uh, for a moment I had to leave the room actually went back to my room and uh, I got out my phone and I walked back into my dad's room and I called my mother and I told her what I was seeing I literally said I'm standing in my dad's room and there's blood all over his pillow and Dead. Watching this interview was the first experience I had with Dellen Millard. I had heard of the case and had read a brief overview, but I hadn't really seen anything else about him. When I watched this video, I immediately felt like something was off about him. In this interview, Dellen is not a suspect. The police are questioning him as a witness to the death that ultimately gets ruled a suicide, but I don't know how he never became a suspect. Maybe it's just because I know what he has done and what he eventually will do, but not only does he have a vibe that is just plain off, he has some strange answers to questions. First, it takes him a really long time to call 911. And at first, she thought I actually meant um, uh, my dog, Petto, because she kept asking about his dog bed. I said, no, not the dog bed, his bed's pillow. She said, well, Petto's not dead, who's dead? I said, my dad. And she just started screaming on the phone. And, um, uh, uh, and I, well, I stayed on the phone with her for a while. I went out to the front. I left the room. I paced in the front driveway. I stayed with her on the phone for a while, and I tried to get her to take a taxi, but she insisted she'd drive out. And 
and um, so she drove over, and I texted a, um, a friend of mine, Andrew, Andrew Michalski, and I told him that something terrible had happened, and would he please come over? I didn't want to be alone. Uh, and he did. And we waited in the driveway together until my mother got there. Uh, and then she went in the house by herself for less than 10 minutes, more than five. And she came back out and, uh, and she pulled out her phone and she called the police. It just seems like his father's death was of no concern. He calls his mom and calls a friend, then waits for them to come over. Then mom spends five to ten minutes inside the house. Then they call 911. This is another prime example of a weird answer. When was the last time you saw your dad? Two hours ago. Like, um... In bed? No, I mean the last time you saw him alive. Wednesday, yesterday, um, would be Wednesday at, uh, about lunchtime. I was just leaving and, uh, he was talking with, uh, Robert, Robert Kozlowski, who was our business advisor. And, uh, I stopped for a moment, uh, to put my two cents in. They were talking about one of our managers, uh, John Barnes, who's been difficult to deal with lately. And I was basically saying, let's just find somebody that's easier to deal with, because he's holding us back. And uh, my father said, say that he said yeah maybe maybe later and uh, and I headed out I went to Oakville from there when someone asks you when was the last time you saw someone who recently died who answers the literal last time they saw their dead body if you have a family member that dies and you have to identify the body if after that Someone asks you when the last time you saw them was, would you answer, five minutes ago in the coroner's office? No, you would automatically think back to the last time you saw them alive. The reason is because most human beings don't like death. If you find a dead body and someone asks you when the last time you saw them was, your brain doesn't want to think about the death, so you skip over that and think about the last time you saw them alive. The problem with Dellen is that he has no problem with death. It's likely that he actually enjoys it. So when the detective asked him about the last time he saw his father, the first thing that popped into his head was seeing his father's dead body. He also gives way more information than he needs to when answering a question, which is a common sign that someone is lying. Instead of answering, I saw him Thursday about lunchtime, he goes into detail about where they were and who else was there and specifically what they were talking about. He goes into detail about his mom thinking the dog was dead and asking about the dog bed. It seems like a huge red flag to me. 
Since it seems like the police already think they're dealing with a suicide, they asked Dellen if Wayne had suffered from any depression, which, of course, Dellen confirms. Okay, was your dad depressed at all? He had depression in him. Um, he carried some great sadness with him throughout life that uh, I never really knew exactly what it was. He never really wanted to share it with me. It wasn't like he was always sad either. Did he get treatment for depression? Was he under a lot of stress um, with this new endeavor? Lots. Lots this year. Was there a chance the uh, business was going to fail? And Yeah, that chance is more than a chance. Is it still a chance? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay, and how... How soluble is your dad if the business fails? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, it, um, like, based on the fact that it was your grandfather's malaria company, the mm -hmm. big transportation company, sold his hangars in, in Toronto. Yeah. Um, the house and some of his possessions, it's, your dad had amassed a certain amount of wealth and looked like he was pretty successful. So if this business, this new endeavor doesn't fly or takes a longer time to get off, is your dad going to go bankrupt or? Yeah. Yeah. Everything that we have is in this business, uh, including loans on the house uh, and including a, a large loan from RBC Bank for the business itself. Dellen made it sound like his father was going to go bankrupt if the new business didn't take off, but that wasn't true. Wayne still had millions of dollars, and that money, along with control of the business, all went to Dellen. This wasn't the only lie that Dellen would tell authorities when they questioned him about his father's death. They asked him if he owned any other property outside of the apartment that he owned and the business property, and he said no, but in 2011, he had purchased a farm in Waterloo. That farm was where he used the Eliminator to dispose of Laura Babcock's body. After Wayne's death was officially ruled a suicide, Dellen became the chief executive officer of Millard Air, and his mother, Madeline, became a corporate officer. It looks as though Dellen considered selling the business, but control was eventually turned over to Madeline, and it looks like the business ceased operation in 2013. Friends of Dellen said he started going on what he called missions with his friends. They would steal things like construction equipment and lawnmowers. These missions were strictly for thrills, since he had more than enough money to purchase whatever he needed. In 2012, a man named Marty McDougall listed a motorcycle and trailer for sale online. A few days later, someone stole the motorcycle and trailer out of his driveway. Marty informed the police that there was a security camera across the street. An officer collected the footage, but Marty never heard back about the case. He said he sent about 10 emails and called about 10 times, but his inquiries were ignored. 
Tim Bosma was a 32-year-old man from Hamilton. He was married and had a two-year-old daughter. He worked as a building contractor and was in the process of building his family's first home. Money was tight, so he decided to sell his pickup truck and buy a less expensive one. In May of 2013, Tim put an ad online selling his 2007 Dodge Ram pickup truck. Dellen and Mark called and asked if they could come by and test drive the truck on May 6th at about 9.30 p.m. Tim was concerned about the late hour, but agreed to let them come by. It's said that they arrived on foot, telling Tim and his wife Charlene that a friend had dropped them off, but later testimony says that Mark was driving Dellen's SUV. Tim went with the two men as they test drove the truck, but they never came back. After several hours, Charlene called police to report her husband missing. On May 9th, police held a press conference where Charlene asked for the return of her husband. The last few days have been very difficult for myself and our families. This does not feel like real life. This only happens on TV and in movies. It does not happen in real life. As you know, I watched my husband drive away just after 9 o'clock on Monday night. He smiled at me and said he'd be right back. And I have not seen him since. You were all aware. I saw the two men that took my husband. You've already been provided a description of these two individuals. I asked you if anyone, if you see anyone that closely matches the description of these men, to please call the police. You've seen pictures of Tim and of his truck. So please, if you see Tim or the truck, please call the police. The police took this case seriously and actually investigated Tim's disappearance, which seems obvious, but you never know. They might have went, oh, he probably just decided to leave you and ran off with a couple of buddies. That seems like the typical response by authorities to missing persons reports. The police got a report that someone found Tim's cell phone in an industrial area while mowing the lawn. They determined that the phone used to call Tim was a burner phone that had only been activated three months prior. Records of that phone revealed two other people who Dellen and Mark had set up test drive appointments with. They didn't show up to the first one, but the man at the second appointment told them that two men had showed up to test drive his truck. He gave authorities a description of the men and told them that one had a tattoo on his forearm of the word ambition. When police released that detail, they were informed that Dellen Millard matched the description and had the same tattoo. Dellen was arrested on May 11, 2013 and charged with forcible confinement and theft over $5,000. When authorities searched properties specific to Dellen, they located Tim's truck inside of a trailer parked at his mother's house and human remains inside the incinerator at his farm property. Police confirmed the remains were Tim's on May 14th. Dellen's charges were upgraded to first-degree murder, and a few days later, Mark was also arrested and charged with Tim's murder. After Dellen was charged with murder, Sean Lerner wrote a letter to the Toronto police claiming they failed to file a missing persons report, didn't collect statements from friends, and eventually abandoned the case. While awaiting trial for the murder of Tim Bosma, authorities came to the ingenious conclusion that Dellen just may have had something to do with the disappearance of Laura Babcock. Man, if only someone had suggested that earlier. They also reopened the investigation into the death of Dellen's father, Wayne. 
This is when Marty McDougal got a call from the police informing him that his motorcycle and trailer had been located, disassembled inside the Millard Air Hangar in Waterloo. At trial, which didn't begin until February 1st, 2016, both Dellen and Mark pleaded not guilty, though Mark pointed the finger at Dellen. He claimed that he and Dellen were test-driving trucks in preparation to steal one. They wanted to make sure the conditions were right before actually committing the theft. Dellen and Tim were in the truck, and he was following them in Dellen's SUV. When they stopped, Tim was slumped over in the seat and there was blood everywhere. They then both traveled to the Millard Air Hangar in Waterloo, where they burned Tim's body in the incinerator before moving it to Dellen's farm. They loaded Tim's truck into an enclosed trailer and parked it at Dellen's mother's house. Mark also claimed to have buried the murder weapon, but didn't remember where. Dellen's lawyer presented a case where Mark was the shooter and his client only helped cover up the crime. It ultimately didn't matter who pulled the trigger. As long as they both planned and participated in the crime, they could both be convicted. On June 17, 2016, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were both found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years, a punishment that the men claimed was unfair. So, today has been a very long-awaited day for our families. For over three years, we have waited for justice for Tim. For three years, we have been in and out of this courthouse, forced to look at and breathe the same, in the same space with the utter depths of depravity in our society. We have had to endure being near the two men that walked down my driveway on May 6, 2013, and took away the bright life in our lives that was Tim. It is their own unspeakable evil acts that have taken away their freedom while saying it is unfair. What is unfair is that now that this chapter is over, we have to truly begin building our lives. What is unfair is that regardless of all that has transpired in the courtroom today, one thing will never change for us. There is one absolute constant for us. This does not bring Tim back. And he will still never come home. For Tim's murderers, their life sentence begins now. And ours began over three years ago when they murdered Tim. While investigating the disappearance of Laura Babcock, authorities uncovered a mountain of evidence. It looked like the entire incident started when Dellen's current girlfriend, Christina Nudga, and Laura had sent each other a series of catty texts. First, Christina sent, quote, Happy birthday. A year ago today was the first time I slept with Dellen, end quote. Laura responded, quote, That's fine. I slept with him a couple of weeks ago, end quote. That got under Christina's skin, and she texted, quote, Did you miss your medication today? You're a crazy psycho bitch just trying to get my boyfriend. You had him and you lost him. Give up. End quote. Authorities also found the texts Dellen sent to Christina threatening to hurt Laura. They found the iPad that had once belonged to Sean at Mark's house, the computer logs that had been plugged into Dellen's computer, Laura's red suitcase with her name tag still on it, the photo of the rolled-up tarp, and text messages between Dellen and Mark. Mark was an aspiring rapper. Don't worry, I'll give you a minute to finish laughing. All right, 
On the iPad that had been renamed Mark's iPad, they found some rap lyrics that read, quote, The bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lay on some ashy stone. The last time I saw her outside the home, and if you go swimming, you can find her phone. End quote. He's not winning any Grammys, but it's pretty clear what he's referring to. Here's another example of Mark's fine rapping skills. Yes, it's like a freestyle session with no lesson, no question. I'm killing you in possessions, it's mine. I'm a killer, check my design. Mountains I climb and throw you off too. Dangle you from the roof, true. Motherfuckers know I leave you blacked up and blue bruised. Who's who? Blues clues. Tell the cops anything and then you die on the news. Peace, bitch. You're deceased, kid. Fuck with me, say 10, the genius. I know all you record labels are dying to sign him, but unfortunately, he's in prison. After getting a warrant to search the home of Christina Nudga, they found 65 handwritten letters from Dellen scattered on her bedroom floor. It seems as if the letters had been smuggled out of prison so that they wouldn't be read by the prison staff. In the letters, Dellen wrote that Christina could be called as a witness, so they needed to get their story straight. His first suggestion was that, quote, Laura was overdoing coke with Mark in the basement. We went to say goodnight to them. You saw her alive with Mark with coke, end quote. He's instantly setting up his best friend to take the fall for the murder by himself. He wrote in another letter, quote, what I've written to you is a rough draft. We need to get our stories straight, end quote. He ended every letter with, quote, destroy this letter to protect me, end quote something she clearly didn't do. It was also discovered that, on July 22, 2012, Dellen purchased a 32 caliber revolver from a man named Matthew Ward Jackson. Matthew confirmed in court that he had sent a text reading, quote, 32, but it's a real nice, nice, compact piece, I'm sure you'd like it, end quote. He confirmed that he'd sold the gun to the man, but didn't know if he was purchasing it for himself or a third party. Matthew had a criminal record filled with gun charges, one of them being for the illegal sale of this gun to Dellen. It just so happened to be the gun that was recovered from the scene from Wayne Millard's supposed suicide. Like many other narcissistic assholes have done in the past, Dellen decided to represent himself. It was most likely an attempt to intimidate witnesses and make them uncomfortable, but it didn't work. He attempted to rattle Laura's father, Clayton Babcock, during his testimony. He asked him, quote, Are you nervous? This can't be easy for you, being questioned by me, considering I'm the accused. Does this make it extra difficult? End quote. The father simply responded, quote, No. End quote. Just like the thrill he got remembering the last time he saw his father's dead body, he wants to see his victim's families in pain. It's obvious that he wants this process to be difficult for Clayton, and it's a strange thing to display while claiming to be innocent of her murder. Dellen asked Clayton questions about Laura working as a prostitute and if he had ever hit or abused her, but the father remained calm and answered the questions without giving Dellen the satisfaction he was looking for. Dellen was warned by the judge for asking inappropriate questions when Sean Lerner took the stand. The convicted murderer tried to rattle everyone who he questioned, but it doesn't sound like anyone took the bait. In December of 2017, both Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to another life sentence with the possibility of parole after 25 years. We've sat through a six-week funeral for our daughter, Laura, and uh, you all know what a wonderful woman she was, as well as all the pains and struggles that she faced. 
You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. Today's verdict really brings us little joy. The loss of Laura is no less painful today than when it was realized five years ago. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. These sentences were to be served consecutively with their current life sentences. That means that they would have to wait 50 years before they would be eligible for parole. Well, at least Mark will be. Dellen still had one more trial to go. After they reopened the investigation of Wayne Millard's death, they found Dellen's DNA on the gun that had been recovered from Wayne's bedroom. They also uncovered the fact that Dellen had purchased the gun illegally from Matthew Ward Jackson. Interviews with people who knew the father-son business owners revealed that the two were having frequent arguments. Some said that Wayne was planning to cut off Dellen because he was spending too much money on things that didn't focus on the business. Dellen had claimed during his interview that he had slept at Mark's house the night before he arrived home at about 6 to 6.30 p.m. when he found his father dead in his bed. Cell phone records revealed that Dellen had actually been at the house from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. that morning, which was around the estimated time of death. This trial was by judge alone, and Dellen seemed to have wised up and got himself a lawyer. It started in June of 2018, and on September 24th, Dellen Millard was found guilty of yet another first-degree murder. He was sentenced to a third life sentence with the possibility of parole after 25 years to be served consecutively, making it one of the longest sentences in Canadian history. At his sentencing, the judge said, quote, While I accept that rehabilitation cannot ever be completely disregarded, the hope of the rehabilitation of Dellen Millard, in light of his pattern of offending, is so faint that it plays little role in the determination of a fit sentence. End quote. After the final trial was over, the police took a lot of heat for not properly investigating the disappearance of Laura Babcock and the death of Wayne Millard. Many people believe investigating those cases more thoroughly would have resulted in Dellen's arrest and conviction before he had a chance to murder Tim Bosma. Even investigating the stolen motorcycle better might have led to his arrest. Detective Sergeant Mike Carbone was asked exactly this at a press conference, and this was his answer. You know, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, I know the officers at uh, 22 Division, with the available information they had at the time, they uh, sought fit to, to, uh, to uh, you know, essentially complete the investigation at that point. I'm not going to comment on whether or not it would have uh, resolved uh, or, saw or prevented any other investigations, because we really don't know. I think that's the bottom line. I'm not going to get into the investigation, and uh, at this point, uh, Mr. Millard's been convicted for the homicide of Wayne Millard. Uh, to get into the, the uh, points as to when and if the homicide squad was involved in the autopsy, it certainly is not going to advance anything at this point. I'm, I'm not going to comment on that, okay? What a crock of shit. He's in prison now, so no harm, no foul. Typical. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help.
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating, Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie.